One of the things that I just find so compelling about these verses from Scripture is the fact that they really do hit all of us. And not because we live in a, in a time and in a place where there is just an abundance of wealth, an abundance of provision, an abundance of possessions, but that the human heart has never been able to understand on its own exactly who and what it is. The Bible actually says that above all things, the heart is deceitfully wicked. I know that we're supposed to trust our heart and follow our heart. The Bible actually says that's one of the dumbest things you could ever do. It says, no, your heart is wicked. Your heart will deceive you. I remember in a ministry that Andrea and I had back in 1991, we were young, we uh, actually believed that we could make a difference in people's lives, and so uh, we traveled up to a part of southern Ontario, and we were uh, youth ministers there for two consecutive summers, went up and for um, three months really spent a lot of time investing in young people, and we grew really close actually to a number of families, one particular family that we spent a lot of time with. I remember them looking at us and saying, we've got these three very young and very impressionable children. People, um, the the Roths loved their kids and just said, listen, we're really hoping that you and Andrea can have a profound impact on them. And I thought we were up for the challenge. I thought, okay, this will be great. We'll do our best to invest in them and to care for them. And then I began, and it was one of those moments where I was overwhelmed by the simple fact that the amount of time that we would spend with them was so small in comparison to those that what we thought were fighting against what God was doing in their lives. You know, we we get to spend an hour on Sunday with them and they're in our Sunday school class and we get to teach them Bible stories. Let me me teach you what Jesus says. And then they go to school (laughs) and they're taught something different. I remember one of the concerns, because these two young girls were uh, just about to enter into that junior high and high school time of their lives, and the parents said, listen, we just want to make sure they make wise and smart decisions, which usually are about drinking and sex, right? And I remember thinking, I just don't know if we can pull that off with a couple hours a week. I remember walking into their home and and they were able to watch anything they wanted. They could go to the video store and get whatever videos they wanted. And all of a sudden I realized, wow, like everything that we're doing, you feel like as a parent sometimes? It seems like everything that we're doing, the world is trying to undo and simultaneously. And it was one of those first moments when I realized, like I I don't know if I can do this. Everything is stacked up against me. Good news is it's not about me, it's not about us, Andrea, it's not about you and I, it's not what we can do, but have you ever felt like that? That all the work that you're doing, all the energy that you're pouring into someone, it just seems like the back door is a whole lot bigger than the front door. What you're adding is is no way capable of actually filling them. And that's what Jesus is dealing with in this text here today. Um, Although the title is called The Difficulty of Being Rich, rich really isn't even the problem. It's really not. We all know the Bible teaches very clearly about the dangers of wealth and the danger of possessions, but it is also um, very clear that the possessions themselves, that money itself is not the issue. The real issue at the heart of this is your heart and my heart. 
It is your understanding of yourself in God's eyes that actually matters the most. Wealth actually comes in. It does, it does play a part, but it, it's not the deciding factor. Well, I want to begin our journey, actually, today, looking at verses 13 through 15. Because before we can get into this conversation with the rich young ruler, it's actually the second conversation that Jesus brings in here. And the first conversation that Jesus brings in is actually a conversation as people are bringing little children to Jesus, um, you're going to see that the disciples want nothing, no, no, they want no part of this. And Jesus makes some profound statements about children that help us understand what really is at the root of all of our struggles. So verse 13, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples, those who've already argued in Matthew chapter 18, who was the greatest, those who already have begun to um, assume leadership roles, not only um, within kind of their own setting, but people are beginning to look up to them and to recognize them for who they are. And, and so it's easy for them to ask questions like, who is going to be sitting on your right hand and the left hand of you in your kingdom that is to come? They're already ready when, when people don't listen to them. Let's call down judgment upon them. So things are changing and Jesus sees this and he points this out. They are there rebuking the people for bringing these children. Now, now again, you need to remember that children, biblically speaking, um, are not as cute and as cuddly and as valuable and as important in the future like they are to us. They don't have that same mentality. We described last week just how common it is for parents to never give up on their children while systematically giving up on their marriages. That, that would be unheard of or even unthinkable in even much of the world today, but particularly in the ancient world. No, children really can't provide much. They're actually more of a negative. They're not just this bright future. They're actually somebody that's um, really not contributing. They're weak, defenseless, helpless. They're not cute and innocent and cuddly. Now, hear me, parents loved their children. I'm not saying they didn't love them, but they recognized that, wow, these, these children really are, and we know it's true, aren't they needy? Don't they kind of suck up a lot of our time and energy? And society responded to that. The disciples are responding to that. And look at verse 14. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And it's not because Jesus recognizes how cute and cuddly they are and how innocent they are. No, Jesus is actually going to be lifting up another attribute of these children. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and, and went away. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says it this way, for unless you receive the kingdom like these children receive it, you will not even enter into it. Unless you know how to respond to God and respond to Jesus Christ like a child does, you can't even enter into the kingdom of heaven. So really what we see here is, is not so much in this rest of this chapter is it going to be an explanation about wealth and it's not really a text to be used to say, hey guys, we need to give more. It's not what this text is at all. This text cuts into the, the, the very heart of you and I, and it asks probably the most probing and the most penetrating question. 
it asks the question, like, are you a kingdom person? Not, not do you go to church? Not, not, not do, you, do you pray to God? Not, not do you want to go to heaven? But are you a kingdom person? It, it cuts much deeper and much truer into the very heart of who each of us really are. So there is just one basic fundamental characteristic of a kingdom person according to this text. And I really think everything kind of flows out of, stems from, um, kind of finds its purpose in this one basic characteristic. Kingdom people, and you can ask yourself, am I a kingdom person? Here's how you know if you're a kingdom person. Kingdom people know who they are. They know who they are. Do you know who you are? I mean, we might, we might, might think that we know who we are. After all, I've been me now for 48 years. I should know who I am, right? But again, if the heart is deceitfully wicked, it's constantly, have you played this game with yourself? Wondering if you're not as important as you want to be? Feeling a little less than you've always desired to be? I, I know you probably would never be able to tell this, those of you that know me well, but when I was a young person, I really wanted to be liked. Class clown, loved to joke around all the time, loved the attention. I know you can't believe that about me. I, I didn't even know what I was doing, to be honest with you. To me, it was just the most natural thing in the world, being me. I didn't see it as needy, I saw it as natural. I saw it as the most logical thing for me to do. And, and when I got the attention I got, it felt great. It, it felt like life. And I, I didn't realize that I was actually feeding a monster. I didn't know who I was. I, I literally was self-deceived. Do, do you know who you are? A kingdom person is somebody who knows who they are. Now, now hear me. Here's the, the beauty of this particular idea is that I'm going to give you a word to describe what this is really all about. And this, this word is a word that is um, misunderstood most of the time. I mean, the Bible does describe us as, um, as sinners. The Bible describes us as our greatest works being nothing but filthy rags before God. The Bible describes us in incredibly broken terms. But the Bible also describes us as being made in God's image. The Bible also describes us as the object of God's affections and God's love and God's purpose and God's plan. So which is it? And the answer is yes. Wait a second, so you're telling me that I'm the object, I've made in his image, I'm the object of his love, he sent his son to die for me, and I'm absolutely broken and helpless, and in that sense, not worthless. No, I'm made in the image of God, so I have a worth, but I am incapable, I am powerless in my worthiness by being made in God's image. I'm absolutely powerless because of my brokenness to find favor with God, yes, then I really, 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 really need him. You know what word I just described there? Is actually the word humble. The word humble. Humble doesn't mean, well, I'm, I'm not good at anything. I really don't know what I'm doing. I'm terrible at everything. You're way better than me and smarter than me and prettier than me. That's not humble. Humble actually is having a, this is the best definition for humility, having a proper understanding of who oneself is, who, who we are, and then living like that. 
responding like that. So here's the beauty of this idea, that what children recognize is, mom, I need something to eat. Can you make that for me? Because I can't make it for myself. You don't say, what are you talking about? You're three years old. You know how to make lasagna. Go to it. Mom, we really need to go to school. Can you drive me to school? Listen, it's only three miles down the road. You'll find it. No, children have this in, insatiable desire to talk and to, to, to speak, to, 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 to know exactly how helpless they are, right? Mommy, 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 mommy. Dad, 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 dad. I know who I am, son. <laughs> what are they saying? Like, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I'm incapable of doing this, and I need you. I need you, I need you, I need you. Next time you hear that word, mom or dad, most times they're saying, I need you. I need you. And Jesus says, unless... Unless we become like children, do not hinder children from coming to me as the Messiah. Actually, who they are and how they understand themselves is the key to getting in. And he says to his disciples, do you understand this? To which they always say yes, but they should say no. They don't know. After all, we, we, we spend our entire lives teaching our children to be what? Independent. You really need to learn to feed yourself. You really need to learn to take care of yourself. You really need to learn to dress yourself. You really, I remember Andrew and I having a serious fight over Velcro shoes. I hate Velcro shoes. It's pretty much a sign that we've given up, given up completely as human beings. Velcro shoes. It can't be that hard to tie them. My wife says, but they're two. They're three. They can do this. They just can't do this. And I said, I, I, I'll tie their shoes. I don't want my children in Velcro. I don't remember who won that argument. Did you win that or did I? Did you win that? Ugh. So there was a time where my wife, in a very rebellious way, let our children wear Velcro shoes, right? Why? Because we want their independence. We want them to be independent of us. We want to teach that. We, we are so proud of the fact that our children are independent and now fully on their own, able to care for themselves, be productive citizens within society. Is that really what God wants? I, I wonder sometimes, and again, it, it's not about this, this crazy like dependency but, but try to find where the Bible describes, where the Bible calls us to this radical individualism, this, this self-sustaining lifestyle, way of living, where I don't need you and I don't need God. I mean, I may decide to invite you in. I may decide, like, if I have, like, certain needs, like, usually outside needs. I, I'm, I'm more than glad to add a few things to my life as experiences or opportunities. But the tru truly, I'm a self-made man. And anything that I actually am inviting in, I'm inviting in at my discretion. Am I describing you? Jesus says, do not hinder these children from coming to me, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. They're humble. They know they're children. They know they can't take care of themselves. They know how badly they need their parent. 
And you just sang a song that said what? I am a child of God. Now, how many of you, when you were singing that, were going, and I am so cute, and I am so cuddly, and I am so sweet, and I am so innocent? Or were you actually singing, I am utterly dependent upon him? That without him, I could not take care of myself. Without his provision, I am completely helpless. Without him, I, I don't know where I would go or what I would do. Without him, I do not know how I would ever accomplish the things that I desire most and deepest in my life. Without him, I am a child, helpless and weak without him. I have to admit, the only reason why I was thinking that this morning was because I had this text on my mind. Ordinarily, when I think about this song, anytime I reference a child of God, I always just think, and he's my dad. I don't think I need you. I so desperately, desperately need you. So Jesus continues on in verse 16. Notice how this story then just kind of builds off of the last one. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This story, by the way, is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Mark and Luke, the, the, this man asks some good teacher, what thing must I do? Matthew actually has, teacher, what good thing must I do? In, in both instances, this man, much like the Pharisees just last week when they wanted to ask a question and test Jesus, this man comes to Jesus with a question what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Okay, this is, would be a way that the Jews would quickly respond to questions like this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Obey the commandments. Now, you might hear that and go, wait a second, I thought we were saved by grace. Well, listen, even in the Old Testament, they believed that they were saved by grace, but the, the Mosaic law, the law that was given to the children of Israel was actually described life, described like life. I give you today the options of life and death. Choose life. Choose to obey God. Choose to, to follow God, which, by the way, the, all of the law can be summed up in these two commands. To what? Love God and love others. Love God and love others. The entire law, Jesus says, is summed up by loving God and loving others. So don't just take this, oh, I thought it was grace, and this guy's trying to figure out how to, how to save himself by works. That's really not what's going on here. Jesus would say something which is very normal. Listen, to, to have life and the life that God desires, just obey the commandments, not as a kind of works righteousness, but as a path to understand exactly who God is, God's love for him, God's care for him, and their complete need for God. So the man responds back, and this is how you know you're in trouble. Not Jesus, the rich young man. When you ask questions like this, and the first response back is defensive. I've got a good friend, and he says all the time, that you can tell when you've touched a nerve when you've spoken something that is very true about someone is because they just want to fight back. That's how you know you've nailed it, right? 
Why are you so upset about this? Why are you so angry about this? Why are you so defensive about this? Well, because you've exposed the reality of my heart. And when our ugly hearts are exposed before ourselves and before others and before God, what do we want to do? We want to cover it up. We want to hide. I want to go back in. I don't want, to, I don't want this to be known about me, my, my neediness or my dependency or my selfishness or my sin. Notice what this man says. And so he said to him, which ones? Technically, there was about 613. We already know that Jesus loves to say, well, it's really, really simple. Love God and love others. Can, can you do that? Can you accomplish that? Which ones? And Jesus said to him, notice the list. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery and you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what still do I lack? So I'm doing it, Jesus. I'm taking care, especially the ones that you mentioned. I'm glad you didn't mention some of the other ones, but I'm really glad that you mentioned those and I've done those. I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never stole anything. Now, you need to understand that in Jewish thinking, the law isn't just all of these independent ones, but it kind of stands together. That's why Jesus' brother, James, in his book says that if you break one of the laws, you break all of the laws. Why? Because they are so intricately held together. They are so closely woven together that you can't selectively choose which ones you want to keep and which ones you want to ignore and then think you can stand before God and say, ta-da, look at what I did. I've kept all of these and notice what he says and this is so, so, so telling. What do I still lack? It's amazing that he knows that somehow, in spite of the fact that he's been a good boy, expects his Christmas stocking to be full of things this Christmas season, he's still missing something. There's one thing that the human heart continues to remind us of, is that somehow the things that we try to fill it with, if it is not God, there is still something lacking. Tim Keller, in his most recent book, loves to describe that why is it the more intelligent we get and the more, uh, the more, the more self-sufficient and self-sustaining we become, the more we cannot escape this question about another world and another life and what is right and what is wrong. Why is it that these profound, the most fundamental and deepest religious questions keep coming back? He answers, it's because God has put it in our heart. He asked the question, what still do I lack? And Jesus then said to him, not, hey, nothing, just work on it a little bit more. For those of you that use church and church-type things as, um, as a personal development program, uh, one, of the, one of the questions that I, I, I on the one hand, I'm, I'm kind of grateful for, and on the other hand, I just think, oh, I don't know if this is going to really work for you is when I meet people who say, you know, uh, we went to church growing up, both my wife and I did, and then we went to college, and you know college, and we kind of laugh for a little bit. And you know, it's, it's been a busy time of life. I mean, I've just, both of us are really kind of career-oriented, and so we really kind of poured a couple of years in, so we never really found a church. But now that we are having our, what, our kids, we, we need to find a place where they can get taught good religious values. 
And I just think, oh. So you don't really think you need God. You just want like a religious instructor for your kids? That's what you want? I can almost always tell that most likely they will be the people that once their kids are done high school, it kind of goes like this, and I've now officially been here long enough to see it in our own people, is that while their kids are young and while their kids are involved, they're coming and they're attending and they're sponsors and they're, everything looks like it's just going along great, but then once the kids go to college, you know, it, the it starts to decrease and to decrease, and then all of a sudden, yeah, you know, we, we've really kind of decided that uh, we, we just we kind of don't really need a place. We don't need a place like that we would stand in front of others and commit to. We don't really need a place where we are like formally connected. We, we really kind of like our freedom now. And you, you see the connection? We need a place for our kids, not we need God. And now it's not, we really still need to be connected and be about God and be about his purposes and connected to the, that's why it's so interesting. The words that describe the church are the family of God, the people of God, the bride of Christ, these relational terms. It's not about coming to church. But most likely, if you came with a, hey, I think this might help my family, that's not the same thing as, I need God I need him desperately. No, it's like just one more thing to add to your long list of personal development opportunities. So Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, now again, let me, let me give you that word. The word comes up a number of times in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We hear that, we think sinless. Don't think sinless. It's not sinless, it's mature. It means growing to your ultimate place that God has designed you for. It means instead of being, this is kind of interesting, instead of being a child, we actually begin to grow up. And we act according to our age. Jesus says to him, if you would be mature, Teleos in the Greek. Go, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, which is what he says in Matthew chapter six. And then come and follow me. Go, take your possessions, give them to the poor, and then you can come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What's interesting is here, we, we, if, if he would have just wanted to blow Jesus off, like, well, that's dumb, go sell all your possessions. That's crazy, Jesus. It wouldn't have said he went away sorrowful. It would have said, and he totally thought Jesus was nuts, and he just walked off. You know what's interesting about this man's response? He knew. Now, I think Jesus is very um, passionately, lovingly, caringly, insightfully, delving into his heart and he exposes his heart and he says, really, you really want to do this? Then let me, let's talk about the 10 commandments and not just the few that I mentioned. The 10 commandments, all I want to kind of refresh your memory on is the first and the last. Remember the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. 
For I, the Lord your God, brought you up, up out of Egypt, so therefore you shall have no other gods before me. Nothing before me. I am first and I am foremost. And you need to understand exactly who I am in this world and who I am even to you. You have to always be aware of your dependence and your need for me. And then kind of later on, I mean, this is outside of the Ten Commandments, he said things like, and, and by the way, that's why I don't want you to work one day a week. I want you to rest from your labor. Preachers have done a poor job of explaining this rest because we just need a break. Sure. Like God did design us, obviously, for seasons of rest. But I would argue that the concept of Sabbath isn't just about rest. It's about learning that even when you aren't being productive, there is one who provides for you. Have you learned that lesson yet? Have you learned the lesson that even when you decide that you're not going to, and here's the biblical idea, one of my favorite lessons, is that when you're a, if you're a farmer, when you're farming, don't farm all the way to the edge of your crops and then make sure that at harvest time you get every little bit of it. Man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sow all the way to the edge of my land and then I'm gonna make sure that there is not one grain left standing, not one stalk left standing. I'm going to make sure I get it all because that's, well, you know what we call that? If it was today, we'd call it good stewardship. You know what God called it? Greedy. You know what God commanded? He said to the children of Israel, not only do I want you to rest one day a week and trust me to provide for you, but here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to harvest your crops all the way to the edge. Leave a little bit. Leave it where? Leave it there. Why? Because there are those around you that I am going to be providing for through you. So I need you to not try to get every little last bit out because it's your right I need you to, um, see, this is what God desires. I really want you to act like me and respond like me. And so I really want you to leave like the edges for others that they might come and, and receive. See, this, 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 this young man knows exactly what Jesus is getting at. Knows exactly that Jesus is pointing out the fact that, hey, listen, like I know you're worshiping God. I, I know that you're going through the motions of much of this worship, but you have never learned a dependency on him. You've never really understood what it means to need him. And in that sense, to love him and to respond to him. One of the most interesting parts of the Lord's prayer for me is this simple statement. It, it makes almost no sense to me. Give us this day our what? Our daily bread. Actually, it always drives me crazy when my mom comes and visits and she goes to Walmart every day. Why? Oh, I forgot something. I got to go back and get it. Okay, why don't you just go there and buy everything that you need so that you don't have to go back every day? How many of you have more than, say, a week's food at your house? Right? We all do. Hear me, I don't even know if that's necessarily bad, but let me be honest with you, it does teach us that that part of the prayer, when I say that, oh, there have been very few times in my life, maybe none, where I've actually had to pray that part of the prayer. Sure, forgiveness and sin and temptation, I get that one, your kingdom come, I sure get that one. But that daily bread thing, 
Like, I don't understand it. I mean, I can take care of my own bread, God. I think God says to me, where do you think it comes from? From my toil, from my giftedness. Well, where do you think that comes from? I just walk into kind of the local grocery store and don't even think anything of it. Completely unaware of my absolute need and dependence on him. The young man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. I, I, I think I would have put it this way. I mean, I'm not trying to argue with Matthew. It's, it's not that he had great possessions, but that his great possessions had him. The first commandment, have no other gods before me. What's the last commandment? Do you remember? Like, do not be covetous. Do not spend your time wanting and figuring out how to acquire. Don't look around and go, you know what I want? You know what I want? You know what I want? And this one hits me hard. This one hits me hard because I, I do, I spend some of my day. You know what I want? You know what I want? I really want that. I really would like that. How could I get that? It, it drives my family crazy because when I get something in my head that I want, it's just going to happen. I can figure out how to get there. And, and to me, it just seems like the most natural thing in the world. It's, it's called being determined. It's called being self-sufficient. And it actually is a rather destructive thing. So then Jesus says in verse 23, listen to what he says here. And so Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Who can be saved? If, if, if rich people, if, if those who are apparently like receiving these blessings because God loves them and cares for them, notice the disconnect. Like, didn't God give us all of this? Isn't God the one who provided all of this? Yes. So then why would this be an encumbrance? Why would this somehow get in my way? Why would this be a stumbling block? And the reason why wealth and possessions is a stumbling block is because to every single one of us, it lulls us into the, salt, the, the, the false security that we did it, that we accomplished it. Now, Matthew also says in verse, the next verse, verse 26, Jesus says and looks at them when they say, well, then how can this happen? Jesus looks at them and says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know, we throw that around quite a bit, don't we? All things are possible with God. God can do whatever he wants. All things are possible. You know that it's actually only used in two different occurrences in the New Testament. One of them is virgins conceiving and giving birth. That's how big God is. Think about this. God is so big, the Bible says these two things are capable by him alone. Number one, virgins getting pregnant. And number two, rich people getting into heaven. That's, that's, that, that's pretty telling, isn't it? Like you and I getting into heaven is kind of like virgins getting pregnant. It requires an absolute miracle on God's part. Which is what? 
Well, I, I just let's maybe we look at that characteristic of people who miss the kingdom. We've already seen, he begins with the characteristic of people who get it, right? They're people who know who they are and they're humble. And characteristics of people who miss the kingdom is people who don't know who they are. They don't know who they are. They actually do believe. They've, they've bought the lie that they've taken care of themselves, that they've actually been the ones who have provided this. They have been feeding themselves and culture has been feeding themselves a list of lies, a list of, of things that have taught them about their independence, not just from one another, but ultimately from God. When was the last time you begged God to do something in your life? What do you think? Even a lot of our evangelism is, is not trying to paint this incredible picture of this, this God that is so great and so worthy and we are so broken. It's more of a sales pitch. The church does this all the time. Come to church and we can help you with your marriage. We can help you with your finances. Oh, and by the way, we've also got this really cool God and some great worship songs to sing. We've got some lessons for you to learn about the Bible, how to, how to better your life. And many people, because, not of their wealth, not of their wealth, but because of their hearts, never fully understand or appreciate how badly they need God. Do you? That's been the painful question this whole week for me. And Jim, it's going to be easy for you to preach this if it wasn't for the fact that like you struggle with this. Like you wrestle with this. My parents pointed it out at an early age. Man, Jim, you like nice things. You sure do like fancy. My dad said that to me all the time. You like fancy things, son. Be careful liking fancy things. I just remember thinking, I can't wait till I get out of this house. And then I take my father's Bible with me and it just haunts me everywhere, you know? People who don't know who they are. Really, what, what keeps you from the kingdom is being proud. It's your own pride. And, and what money does is that money comes along and it defends your pride. Your, your, your money, your wealth, your resources, which come from your talents. Now, by the way, all of that should end up with, and God is the giver of all these things. But when it doesn't, when it never gets down to that root of, and God given us, has given us all of these things, Paul even says in 1 Timothy 6, that God has given us all these things even for our enjoyment. But, but when you use your wealth not as an opportunity to be kingdom-minded, not as an opportunity to be generous, not as an opportunity to, to give thanks to God and to praise him and to be a blessing to others, but literally to just justify and feed your own fears, to alleviate your fears, to prove to you and to others that you're something. That's what, I, that's what I want to use my money and my wealth, to prove that I am someone. And God says, is what I have done for you not enough? Is what I did for you on the cross not enough? And in my weakest moments, I say, well, it's a start. 
But you don't understand, if I could just have a shirt with a pony on it. But you don't understand, if I could just, I don't have to have the fanciest house in town. I just want one that other people are going to look up to. I I just, God, what I really, really want is you and. And what this text is reminding us, that whenever we say we want God and, 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 and not the things that God is going to bless us with, but if, if, if I can't have you and, then I don't want you. See, that's the issue. Jesus actually says, don't seek after all of these things, money and wealth and possessions. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you. And if your attitude is so great, so I still get those things, you still don't understand. That's the difficulty of being rich. It is so deceitful. So Jesus ends our text by saying, and then Peter said, Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus is pointing out that we can spend all of our lives trying to hold on to everything or we can give it to him. That we can either have a kingdom-minded focusness or we can actually say, no, what it really is, it's about me. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm more than willing. I get it. I get that God wants his peace. I get that God deserves his share. But in the end, it's mine to give. And fundamentally, that mindset, that attitude is, it's like working your fields right to the very end. It's like working every day like you can make something of yourself. It is missing the fundamental fact that every single one of us is more dependent on God all the way down to our daily bread than any of us really fully understand or appreciate. It's really not a threat of hell I want you to feel this morning. It's not a threat of missing the kingdom that I want you to feel this morning. It really is the the danger of, of missing him. Hell is a byproduct, by the way, of missing God. I know hell sounds terrible. I can describe it. The Bible uses words like fire and torment and kind of this grinding of the teeth. But you know, the grinding of the teeth actually doesn't mean, ow, I'm in pain. It's that grind. Have, have you ever ground your teeth with like, oh, we could have had that? You ever done that? You ever had that grinding of the teeth? Right now it looks like Mike Gundy has the grinding of the teeth. Urgh, that one win if we just would have had that, right? That's the grinding of the teeth. It's, oh, if I just would have known. And Jesus points out, you do know. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out. But if you have food and clothing, and these you'll be content But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Jesus, when he describes the different soils, he says this of one of the soils. 
As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth or riches choke the word and it proves unfaithful. So what Jesus is doing in this incredible story this morning is he's helping us see not just that money is bad and possessions are evil and they need to be avoided at all costs, but he's saying, no, I want you to stop right now and I want you to take a heart check. I want you to ask a really, really tough question. Do you know how bad you need God? And some of you may actually be deceived into believing that you, um, that you don't need him as bad as you do. Why? Because there are things in the way. And Jesus says, getting rid of everything, getting rid of everything so that you can have him is and will always be the best decision you would ever make. Let's pray. And so God, I thank you for the opportunity and the challenge to truly give our lives to him. God, I thank you for pointing out that wealth, that riches, that possessions, when properly used and enjoyed are kingdom-minded and they glorify you through our use and even our enjoyment of them. But that God, whenever we get the order mixed up, whenever we forget that we shall have no other gods before you, and unless we, we watch very carefully the eye of envy, Father, we can miss out on the greatest thing. Not, just, not the things that this world can offer, but the one who offers the things of the world that you made. And so God, teach us that kind of humility and dependence. For you alone are worthy. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we humbly pray. Amen. If you would like to continue this faith conversation, we sure would love to continue it with you. I'll promise you this. It sure would have been a lot easier to say, hey guys, why don't we just all give a little more to your favorite charity or to the church or whatever, but that's not what God wants. What does he want? He wants your heart, all of you. Give it to him. We love you guys. God bless. We will see you next Sunday.